Hello, welcome to this week's Book Shambles, and today's guest is me. I'll be talking to me uh, about some things that I typed and then became a book, because my book Bibliomaniac is out now. It's my book all about my love of books and bookshops, and I launched it on Tuesday, the, is that the 3rd of October, was it the 4th of October, at the Wanted Tap with Newham Books, who are a wonderful community bookshop, and Wanted Tap is uh, a wonderful bar and venue as well. And I was quite erratic, we'd had quite a busy week, uh, the night before finished the arena tour with Brian Cox, or the UK part of the arena tour with Brian Cox in Liverpool, and then we got up very early, came down, I did some publicity for the book, and then I got along there, and I just started talking on stage, and I, I was very worried about it, actually, I was tired enough that the negative voices started to come out a little bit, and uh, and I think also, uh, probably in this episode as well there's some things that I've never talked about before and there's a poem that I've never performed before and I I hope I it was perhaps I don't know if I was overly personal but anyway this is from the Wanted Tap on the 4th of October I've remembered now and uh, this was my book launch for Bibliomaniac it's producer Trent here now uh just to remind you of a few things Robin didn't mention in his intro there Bibliomaniac, which is out now, you can get it from the Cosmic Shambles bookshop at cosmicshambles.com slash shop, where we have signed copies that also come with three exclusive art cards featuring uh, Natalie K. Thatcher's artwork that is in the book. The only place you can get them is from Cosmic Shambles, so head to the shop and get that now, if, of course, you haven't already. And this podcast version of the launch event is an abridged version. Uh, This is about 45 minutes long. The full event was about an hour and 20 minutes. And next week, we'll be making the full version, a filmed video version available for our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe. The full edition that you can uh, watch in the comfort of your own home will be out for you next week. A couple of other quick things to mention before we get to the episode. Nihilists and Carols for Curious People and the Compendium of Reason. Uh, tickets for both of those events are on sale now. November 23 for Compendium at Albert Hall, December 16 and 17 at King's Place for Nine Lessons. Robin hosting all of those, uh, obviously hosting Compendium with Brian as well. And if you've not seen the news this week, we have officially announced our first ever feature documentary film. It's called Rapid Motion Through Space, An Incomplete History of Speed. It's basically a biopic on the concept of speed, from the speed of light to tectonic plates to speed of thought and sport and nature and everything else. Uh, It's a full, proper feature film. It's going to be out In the new year, it's going to be available free online for everyone. And there's also going to be uh, some cinema screenings around the country with Q&A panels afterwards as well. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash rapid motion to find out more about that. And now on today's episode, this is the launch event for Bibliomaniac. Here is Robin Ince live for the Wanstead Tap. Anyone was going to be someone who encapsulated what we do here. It's the genius that is Mr. Robin Ince. Thanks very much for coming down. 
this is uh, right. It's, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I've got a load of books here, and uh, and I'm really glad that I'm doing this. This is the first kind of this is like the kind of book launch, uh, and I'm really glad to do it with Newman Bookshop because it is my book is all about just the beauty of independent bookshops and the fact that when you go into places like you know the bookshop in Newham, what you see is something very carefully curated, and you see part of someone's mind, not merely the minds of the authors, but the or the mind of the person who runs the shop. And I think that is one of the most delightful and wonderful things. And so what happened, I'll give you the kind of background. Uh, last year, I was meant to be doing a tour with uh, Brian Cox um, around arenas, and then that got postponed. And I didn't like the idea of doing nothing. And I thought, well, we were meant to be playing the 12,000-seater uh, O2 but maybe I should go to the 12-seater Margate Bookshop instead. So that's basically what happened was I swapped arenas for bookshops, that, and they only fitted 12 because I found a way of hanging off a thing that meant we could fit two more people in, right? Technically, it's a 10-seater shop. And, um, and I just... I, I initially thought I had a new book coming out and I thought maybe I'll just go and see like 20 books because I'd, I'd basically I'd met some bookshop people at the independent uh, bookshop conference that there is and and that, that's the best place to see them because pissed up booksellers are really entertaining so anyway I uh, I wanted to just to go to all of these fantastic because I love books so much I just uh, from a very early age like I've got I've got a stack of books here uh, some of my favorite things and uh, I, I, it's hard to work out where to start, really, on um, why I... I mean, I was brought up in quite a bookish house, and I think that helps. I, I think if you're surrounded by books, if you're not kind of fearful of books, that's a good starting point. Um, because it does... It, sometimes it horrifies me when I see the statistics of actually the average number of books that are in a house, because I, that's about the average number of books that I buy in a week. Um, and I think the books give you just so many... To me, in a world which can be quite... Uh, at times cruel and vindictive and judgmental and when we see how much of the kind of the, the, the world, the, the way politics works at the moment, the way the culture wars work at the moment which is to find marginalised groups and somehow turn them into enemies. And so, In fact that's the first book I'll talk about because I was doing, the, the, the book starts at the Wigtown Book Festival and I saw someone has a Summer Isle t-shirt on don't they? Is that some, as in Wicker Man Summer Isle? Because you might know that uh, Wigtown is where they filmed some of, uh, of the Wicker Man. And uh, still many of the locals have different anecdotes of how they tried to escape from Christopher Lee as he told them anecdotes. And because uh, one of my favourite lines about uh, Christopher Lee is always that line going, oh, Christopher Lee, either he's flown it or his mother was one. And... Uh, <laughs> And I, but anyway, so I, I, I was up there, and uh, and the first time I played Wigtown, because like all of the book festivals, it seems in the United Kingdom, uh, they're always about sixty miles from the nearest station, and so you get a lift, and then you get driven sometimes with an author that you like, sometimes with an author you don't know, and sometimes with Kenneth Baker, the former education secretary of Margaret Thatcher's government, who you might remember was a slug uh, in Spitting Image. They used to do him as a slug. And I found it very interesting, actually. I found it interesting journeying with Kenneth Baker because he was someone that I'd kind of marched against, some of the things that he brought in. But the one thing I did think was that he seemed to be quite an erudite man. I mean, Martin Rousen, the, the, the brilliant cartoonist, uh, he's actually, he gets on with him very well. Even though Martin's a kind of somewhere between an anarchist and a Marxist, he gets on okay with Kenneth Baker. So I thought, well, at least he's an interesting man. He's not like, I mean, I think now when we look at the people in government, you see very little curiosity 
I don't think you see, you don't imagine those, they're, 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 they're not, they are, you know, they're, they're, they're lacking an excitement about knowledge. They're, they're, they're gleeful about money and ego and little else. And um, when I had that journey with Kenneth Baker, I started thinking uh, about one of my favourite books, right? And I'm going to start with, this is, some of you will remember, some of you will be old enough to remember uh, Clause 28 which, of course, became Section 28. And that was probably the beginning of, I suppose, me finding out about the world of politics. It was, it was the beginning of... I mean, at that point, seeing that kind of... I mean, again, this is why I love books. I remember the excitement when I was 17 of reading Joe Orton's diaries and the terror that anyone might know what I was reading off the page as he cottaged around the country you know, from builder to, you know, army cadet and all of these. And it was just, and it was a different world. And that is why I love books. I love books because they take you into other people's minds, into other people's lives. And I think that's, and also I would say reading Kenneth Williams' diaries as well. I remember when they came out a few years later. I, I love Kenneth Williams. And uh, I, I just, I actually, I, I quite often carry his diaries with me. And sometimes I look up what happened on that day in Kenneth Williams' life. And I looked up what happened to him on the day that I was born, February the 20th, 1969. And the full entry is merely, went to Croydon, we didn't like it at all, and came straight home. So that's the whole, that's what happened on February 20th, 1969. And, uh, and I love, again, because also he had, he was, a, I've always found him a deeply fascinating man. One of my favourite stories about him is when he was on Parkinson with John Betjeman. Uh, and in his diaries, he actually talks about the fact that I started to show off, actually. And he's kind of, he's a bit annoyed with himself because he started to do this whole thing. Going, well, you see, the thing is, Michael, that, you know, the working man, they're always after more money, aren't they? You know, and he does this big thing. And, and, and eventually, Michael Parkinson goes, Kenneth, can I just say, I think you're talking crap. And Kenneth, oh, I've never been so. And he said afterwards, he went, right, I want you to come back on this show in a few weeks with Jimmy Reed. I don't know if you, any of you remember Jimmy Reed, union activist Jimmy Reed. And, uh, and Kenneth Williams was like, all right. And, and I think he thought, oh, I'll get the better of him. And so they got to the mic check. And uh, the floor manager says, oh, uh, Kenneth, can we just have uh, a few lines for you? So Kenneth recites a bit of W.H. Auden. And, uh, and Jimmy Reed, when he finished, just went, that was W.H. Auden, wasn't it? And Kenneth Williams looked a bit put out. Mm, yeah, it was, yeah. Mm. Surprised he knew that. And he goes, okay, I'll do a poem too. And so he does a poem. And at the end, he looks at Kenneth Williams, he goes, do you know who wrote that? And Kenneth Williams goes, no. And he went, I did. Now that, right, so I just, I love all of those kind of stories. So uh, again, that, these, these books were, were my entry into seeing other people's existences. But this is one of my favourite books that I've ever bought in a bookshop. This is Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. Does anyone here remember Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin? This was the centrepiece of Clause 28. This was, I'm just going to find out how many people, do anyone know how much this is worth, what this generally goes for on the internet? It does go for 500, exactly right. That saved a lot of time. So um, this is, uh, I, I picked up for 20 quid. It was in the glass cabinet in the Oxfam. You know, when you're drawn, you go, I must fight. Oh, they have treats, right? And it was 20 pounds. I thought, I, I want this just because it was so much part of a kind of history of growing up. And because I remembered that in all of the newspapers, you know, in the Telegraph and the Times and the Mail and the Express, it was like, this filthy book, this filthy book of a child with two gay men. 
then imagine the things they get up to. Imagine that nothing really. They don't get up to very much at all. They walk down the street hand in hand. The worst form of walking down the street. Um, sometimes pulled in a cart, but where to? The shops. Um... Why has he got a peg in his mouth? Is it S&M? We don't know. I think he's just hanging up the washing. So is this kind of just, it's such an innocuous book and such a sweet, oh, hang on a minute, here we go. Bit of rubber action. They're mending a tyre. So it was just this kind of very sweet book. And as I said, this and the, the story was that this book was in every single school, brainwashing children to become homosexuals. And uh, there was only one copy of this book. It was at the uh, Inner London Education Authority in their central library. Um, but this is, uh, this is my favourite part of the book. There's a little cartoon at the end, which is so sweet, right? It starts off with kind of almost stick figures there. I love you, Fred. I love you too, Bill. Why don't we move in together? That is a good idea. And then a woman with a handbag comes in there. Oh, no, what is this? Two men cannot live together. It is very wrong, but we really love each other. Why is it wrong, triple question mark? It just is, exclamation mark. Anyway, my husband would never kiss another man. Fans of Roald Dahl's Tales the Unexpected? Watch out for a twist. Here comes the husband. Now, that is not quite true, dear. When I was young, I was in love with a man and we lived together. But then I met you and it was you I loved most and you loved me most. So we moved in together and got married. But goodness, why didn't you ever tell me that? Well, obviously, why not? Because you're an awful bigot. Um, <laughs> I always thought it was wrong when two men love each other. There are so many things people think are wrong. It can never be wrong to live with someone you are fond of. Suppose that's right. I never thought of it that way. I'm sorry. You must forgive me. Bye bye. Bye bye. So there we go. It's just like, and that's that's one of the things that I love about books as well. The cultural history within that inside that children's book is a rich and and it's a history that, as you probably know, is repeating itself at the moment as well. We're living in a new kind of time of Section 28 of Clause 28. We're living in another time when people. I mean, this is the thing that I find quite amazing. It never changes. Every group of middle-aged people look at young people and go, "We got it exactly right, and we moved exactly where we were meant to." But these young people are pushing it too far, right? You know, back in the six. I mean, men nowadays, some of them have hair so long, you'd think they were a woman. I mean, Boy George. Lucky is called Boy George. Otherwise, you wouldn't know he was a boy at all, would you? Non-binary? What is... Oh, for fuck's sake. It's just the, the tedium. Like, like I, the Non-binary, the number of middle-aged people. I mean, what does, what does they mean? And it's so simple. You just have to do a bit of reading and you'll understand what that means. And you understand. It's very important that young people annoy the middle-aged or nothing is moving on, right? I, I mean, I, I have no problem with non-binary. Because like when I was, I was never been very good at being a man. I'm just not very good at it. I try. I remember when I was like 10 and I thought, I'm really not a good enough boy. I can't kick or throw or anything. I need to be more like a boy. I know I'll buy Match Magazine all about football and I'll get a Panini sticker book. And that lasted like one week. And then I just went back to dressing as Serverland from Blake 7. So it's, 
that, 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 I love watching all that culture. I love just seeing the way these kind of things open out. And like the other thing that I also find, like some of, some of my favorite books and some of my favorite figures are, again, that intro, like Ernest Thesiger. Does anyone remember Ernest Thesiger? Ernest Thesiger was, if you don't know Ernest Thesiger, he was in uh, a brilliant film called The Old Dark House uh, with Boris Karloff, amongst others, and he was also in the film The Bride of Frankenstein, and in which he plays Dr. Pretorius. Have a gin, it's my only weakness. He was the most wonderful-looking man. He had this very, very fine skeletal face and, and a tremendous... He, he was very aplomb with his camp. And he's actually the book that I've most been searching for in the last few years is a book called Practically True, which is his autobiography, and I cannot find it anywhere. But the book of his that I have found is this one. Again, it's still quite collectible. This one is Adventures in Embroidery. Um, and what I love about this book, I know who owned it before, it was Enid Pickles. And isn't that a great name, Enid Pickles, right? And I've looked up Enid Pickles, and I've even found out which embroidery group she belonged to in the Shrewsbury area, right? Again, all of these little hints that are left behind in a book. And Ernest Thesiger, he, he loved embroidering, and he would, there's some beautiful pictures of him sat just on stage, just off stage, doing Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, just embroidering, waiting for his cue. And he also fought in the First World War. And he fought on the Western Front. And on the Western Front, people were shocked because he seemed like such a delicate man. But he was a man who'd been on the front line. And someone, when they found out, once went, oh, my goodness, Ernest, I've only just found out. You've, you, you fought on the Western Front. Good Lord. What was it like? And he said, oh, the noise. <laughs> and the people. So it's just like this beautiful thing. And, and what he wanted to do was he wanted to start... In, he realised that so many men were now bedbound that it would be a wonderful thing to start an embroidery group for bedbound victims of war. But, of course, you know, so he started this special thing. That, and then, of course, the, the, those at the top, the, 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 the real kind of generals were like, we cannot have men embroidering in their beds better they were bored than they embroider and I love the fact that Ernest Thesiger fought for that though that he was he again by watch because my first favorite book after the Hamlin color bible which I used to love if anyone had the Hamlin it was so gory men hanging off trees by their hair all manner of people being eaten I loved it and then I read the full bible and it turned out it's not nearly as exciting and uh the uh but it is that was my first favorite book and then I really got into horror films I never saw a horror film but I when I was eight years old with my my eighth birthday money I bought Alan Frank's horror movies book and I'd not seen these films, but I would see these images in these films. So just one photo, like, for instance, the photo of the Wicker Man, which is just there in bed, Edward Woodward looking shocked by a hand of glory there, the hand with the candles coming out of it. And then I would see there's one called The Frozen Dead, which is it's just it's a bunch of frozen Nazis. And I've asked Mark Gatiss and Steve Pemberton and Jeremy Dyson and Reese Shearsmith if they've and they've never seen it either because we've all agreed that whatever we've imagined in our mind will be far greater than whatever the filmmaker managed because that was part of the joy of childhood as well where you would just see one little clue as to what lay within and then you would make a whole film in your head and so so yeah I loved so 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 the, those horror movies introduced me to 
people like Ernest Thesiger, or people like Peter Cushing. Again, this kind of wonderful gentleness that Peter Cushing had, this wonderful quality where his book, actually, Past Forgetting, is a, is a lovely book. It has some very sad stories in it uh, about the, uh, the loss of his wife, um, and it also has some, some gloriously strange stories. Uh, the story in his childhood, he'd always, his, uh, his mother and father had hoped that he was going to be a girl, and his mother was so disappointed that he wasn't a girl that she just dressed him up as a girl. And uh, that went on for quite a while until he got lost in a town one day. And his father rang up the police station and went, have you found a lost boy? And they went, no, we found a lost little girl, though. And he went, would you just like to check? Oh, OK. You're correct, it was a boy, right? So they did that. So he was kind of, it's a bit like the, the lovely story of Sartre. I, I think it's in his book Words, which is uh, Jean Paul Sartre's, uh, really where existentialism came from, which is Jean Paul Sartre had lovely, lovely curly locks, lovely curly blonde hair that all flowed down his head. And uh, as you might know, you know, Jean Paul Sartre, you, you don't really think of him all looking angelic, but his mother thought he was the most angelic boy in the world. And uh, then one day when she was out, his grandfather went, we must cut off this hair. You look too girlish. And of course, they cut off his hair. And as you know, if you've seen a picture of Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, I'm, I'm not saying he's a bad looking guy, but he's, he's, he's not, he's kind of, well, all I can tell you is his mother came back home, screamed, ran upstairs and cried for three days on end. So uh, that's how existentialism began, at the barbers. And uh, I always love that line, existentialism, not so much philosophy, more a bad mood. Um, now, the sorry, by the way, this is really erratic. I'm, I'm absolutely fucking exhausted. And, uh, and I've realised that this, you probably are just sitting there going, I have no idea what's going on. But the good thing is, neither do I. So... Um, but I think, again, that's part of the reason that I love books, is one of the things that I do with books that you're not meant to do with books is I don't read them to the end. Now, some people, that is the rule, isn't it? I get a book, I read the whole book. Even if I hate the book, I keep reading the book. Sometimes, oh, when will the book end? And I don't agree. I think that's a ridiculous rule. I love diving in. I love grabbing different words. I love finding out just different little clues. Of, you know, sometimes you get to a certain sentence in a book and it's so beautiful and it changes the sky so much or it changes your perception so much that you think, that's where I'm just going to leave this book for now because everything's bubbling and fizzing in my head and I'm just enjoying that bubbling, fizzing sensation. And I think, you know, that's quite a kind of input. You know, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about diving. I mean, that's how I read. Someone said, how do you read so many books? And I said, I just go, I grab a book, and I grab a book, and then I grab a book. And this huge tag match just plays out. And I'm just trying to keep filling my head, just keep filling my head, and so that I can find out new, different, wonderful things. You know, I read Charles Darwin, but I don't feel that I need to just sit there with On the Origin of Species, just continually reading and reading and reading. I'll suddenly find out something about an orangutan, and that's all I need to know for that particular day. And then I'll leap into another book. Like, recently I found myself reading both the autobiography of Roy Chubby Brown... And also, at the same time, the autobiography, or the biography, rather, of the poet Anne Sexton. And sometimes I get confused and forget which book I'm reading. But that never happened with this, right? It's, uh, there really is a difference between uh, Anne Sexton's poem, Menstruation at 40, and Roy Chubby Brown's You Fat Bastard. Uh, 
Both of them, of course, works of poetry in their own right, but very different perspective-wise. So that's, again, going back to the kind of the, the... Why did I bring up... I can't remember why I brought up the horror movies book. There was a reason I was going to... Oh, Peter Cushing, Past Forgetting, right? So in Past Forgetting... My favourite story, I mentioned the bit about him being a, a girl, and then I got caught up with the Jean-Paul Sartre. Anyway, so, the story I meant to tell you is how Peter Cushing first kind of got scared of death. Because he was, you know, as I said, he was a fascinating man and a gentleman, but he was always very, he, was, he, he found, you know, death was, was this, this very worrying, he had a certain morbidity about him. And this was because when he was little, if he was naughty, his mother would punish him by pretending to be dead. Isn't that amazing, right? He said, if I was naughty, and I often was, then my mother would start singing a song, and the song would go, I'm going to go over the sea, I am. I'm going and going over the sea. I'm going to go, and I'd go, please don't die, mummy, please don't die. I promise to be good, but of course then I'd be naughty again. And then she'd just be there being dead for a while. And I'd be very upset. And my brother would come in and go, don't be so silly, Peter. You know she's not dead. Go on, kick her, shove her. <laughs> But I couldn't, because it was mummy. And then one day, when she was being particularly dead, and I was so upset, I had a piece of bread covered in jam, and I just shoved it in her face. And uh, she never did this again. So <laughs> that's in Peter Cushing's past forgetting. And, I, and, I, and I, I, I adore that book, right? Again, you just get everything. It, it's that sense of the human being in there, which is such a delight. Another thing that I delight in with books as well is things like this. This is galaxies and quasars, right? This, I bought this from October Books in Southampton. And I probably don't need it because it's quite an old book about galaxies and quasars. It's not kind of up to date. Um, but I didn't buy it because I wanted up to date science. I bought it because of the inscription in the book. And uh, this book just has written in it at the beginning To Mammy, from a quarrelsome and recalcitrant, if not positively contrary, offspring, in gratitude for all your efforts before and after and during the 27th of August, 1981. If I do not lay the world at your feet, it is because I send you galaxies and quasars with love. Isn't that beautiful? And again, I love the fact that I, I write about it in the book, and I'm kind of hopeful that someone might know who wrote that. Or it, maybe even the person who wrote that might read the book, and then I can return this to them. Because that's what I love about books, I think, most of all, is that the amount of love that they contain and the fact that we as human beings are, from what we know so far of the universe at least, this very rare species, we are able to leave not merely a fossil, but also fossils of our mind. You know, most creatures will leave behind some physical remnants, perhaps, perhaps a bit of bone, perhaps a fossil, perhaps some vestige of fur, whatever it might be, but we can leave behind some of the activity of our mind. Some of those little bits which are, whether it is in a poem or a letter or a note or something you have inscribed in a book or maybe you've actually written a book, whatever it might be, you are leaving some of your words behind. I remember when my mum died and um, I was, she'd been, uh, if any of you have read the, 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 the book I wrote, I'm a joke and so are you, I wrote a little bit about the fact that my mum, when I was in, th when I was, th just before I was three years old, uh, my mum was in, and I was in the car at the same time as well, in quite a, a hideous car crash, uh, in which she was uh, in a coma afterwards, and it, I also add it wasn't her fault, it was the other driver's fault, he was on the wrong side of the road, driving at speed on an autumn night, and, um, and she was very ill. She was, uh, for a long time, and she had many battles, both uh, physically and mentally. 
And I've always been fascinated by when someone dies, and you might have all had that experience, when you start going through some drawers and you start to find little things left behind that you never knew about. And I found some of the letters that my mum had written. One, I found some poetry she'd written, again, before the accident. And then I also found when she was like 20 years old and she had been working out in uh, Africa, in, in, in Ghana. And I read about this woman who was a woman that I never knew, who was an incredible adventurer, who drove on roads where you were only allowed, on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, you were allowed to drive north, and on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, you were allowed to drive south because they were so thin and so dangerous, nothing could ever come in the opposite direction. And I read this little bit where she said, we arrived in a town today. Oh, it was the most awful place. We went into the club where various colonial men all looked like they'd come out of a Graham Greene novel. <laughs> and I never heard her speak like that. But there was some of the mother that I didn't know left behind. And, and I think about, I got asked the other day about my favourite book. Um, which one would I save if there was a fire in my house? And I hope there's not, because I've already lost a thousand albums to my basement flat flooding with shit. So if fire comes on as well, the, you know, that, that's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No one tells you there's a fifth one that's just a load of, anyway, sewage. But, the, um, but it was, uh, if I do, it would be The Little Prince, because that was my mum's first book. It was a book she had when it first came out. She would have been five years old. And what I love in that book is, again, a little bit of my mum that is left behind, which is there's a, a, a picture of the prince being throttled by a snake. I don't know if you remember that picture. And that's the only bit of damage she did to a book. She got a pencil and she scribbled out the snake. And I presume her five-year-old mind was saying, no, you can't do this if I scribble him out then he can't strangle that little boy. And I read from that book at her funeral. And I read, I've actually found out since that a lot of people read from it, but it has, it has that beauty. Again, words which are, this is one of the things that I adore about books as well, that every time you revisit certain books, the book itself has changed because you have changed. And, and with The Little Prince, However many times I've read that, it changes. And so when I was standing there, there weren't many people at my mum's funeral. And I, was, I was doing the eulogy, and I talked a little bit about Carl Sagan. Again, Carl Sagan is someone else that I often think about the fossils that are left behind. I think about the fact, the influence that he's had on me, the influence on making things like the infinite monkey cage. That comes from reading Carl Sagan's words. And it comes from, I, I, I talked a little bit about that thing, that idea, the fact that all of the atoms that have made us will go on to be in many different things and I love that idea for those of us who don't have religion I think there is some solace in the block universe I think there is some solace in the fact that the atoms just keep on going they might not be there only your atoms briefly so I was thinking about that and the first time I really thought about that was a, a, a book of philosophy by Nicholas Fern which had such a beautiful image in it there was a man who uh, had um, uh, been he, he'd been the mayor of a small town but he died in shame. And so they buried him outside the graveyard. He was out of, outside the hallowed ground. And as usual, of course, in human affairs, 100 years later, they looked at the papers and they'd realised that he hadn't been a bad man at all and he'd been framed. And they thought now is the time to dig him up again and move him into the graveyard. And he was buried just by an apple tree. And when they dug him up, 
they found that there wasn't really a body left there anymore. There was merely a root which was shaped like him. So that root had gone through him, taken up the new... So every single local who had plucked an apple off that tree had to some extent plucked and eaten some of the atoms of the shamed mare. So all of these kind of vivid images. So anyway, back to the little prince. There was When I read that, stood there in, in St. Michael's Church and that beautiful story where the little prince, as we know, is actually dying. And I realised that in another way, we won't go into the different means of the little prince, but you know there's lots of different things going on there. But when he talks of the star, that beautiful little asteroid that he lives on with the, the rose there protected, and he talks of the fact that I am going to give you something very, very special. I am going to give you something no one else has because I am going back to my star, and when I'm back on that star, every time you look at that star, I will be laughing. So for you, only for you, the sky is laughing every night when you look towards me. And I think, you know, th those things, again, that when I was a kid, that didn't mean very much. It was just part of the story. When I was 48, reading out that at my mother's funeral, suddenly the sky did start laughing that night. And again, it had changed. I keep going back to that. It had changed the sky for me. And I think that's, that to me, this is, this is why books are so important. This is why stories are so important. This is why bookshops are so important. Because they are far more... I mean, in the book at one point I wrote, I think it might... I don't know where it is in the book, but I said, I, I, I don't retreat into books. I advance out of them. And I think many of us might be those people who, when we were kids, we were outsiders. We didn't really feel that we fitted in, but we did fit in when we went to the library on a Saturday morning. And we did fit in when we could go and hide in a corner somewhere in school, and we could just sit there and we could just read a book. And that was the point. And then we had, we might not have had many friends at school, but we had this incredible array of conversations in our head. And that hope, I always think, I, I was with a, a, a young boy that I know when I was playing Wembley uh, last week. And yeah, 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 it's true. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, there was a, a, the, 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 this young lad that I know. Uh, I asked him, I said, how's it at school? He's about 12 years old. Mm. I said, um, oh, hang on a minute, it's Josie Long. Mm. Josie, um, I'm just doing a, a book launch event at Wanstead Tap, so I'm going to have to go. I'm just halfway through quite a moving story. Is that okay? Right. Yeah. I will. I'll give you a call later. Bye. Say goodbye to Josie Long, everyone. That's why I love Josie Long as well. It's not, not due to the fact she calls it the most. It's basically what's happened is Brian Cox has made me buy a new phone because he goes, I can't communicate with you unless you've got an iPhone, right? And I don't know how it works. I don't know how to switch it off, right? It's just, it's been a disaster. This, it told me that the nearest station was Wanstead Tube Station. It's not. It was quite a long walk. But I, uh, where was I? Where was I? I um, the books, the changing books, the little... The boy, right, the boy at Wembley. Thank you very much. That was your test, and some of you passed, and others of you, I realise you've moved to another place in your mind now to get through this. Um, no, but he was, he was just talking about the fact, when I, when I said how school, he, he said, oh, I'm still being bullied. In that way, that is just kind of like, it's just, yeah, that's what happens. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just ignoring them. I said, that's a good thing because it, it empowers them if you're so just... And then I said to him, I said, you know, the thing to know... I said, I didn't really like school. And, uh, you know, so 
try not to worry. Don't think this is the way. Because this, to me, is, I think, one of the things that can be empowering with the books is as you start to meet all these different people who are not necessarily like the people who live down your street or not necessarily like the people in your class or whatever it might be, you realise that this the little dome that you were in at school is not the only place. And you have those dreams that when you leave school, when you then have a little bit more freedom to try and go into directions you want to go, you will find the people that you fit in with. And I think that's, you know, books, I think were, I mean, I remember how important things like, you know, Doctor Who books were for me. You know, when the Doctor Who and the Deadly Assassin, still my favourite one of those. And I love those books so much that I actually, I stole them from the brother of a school friend. That's a terrible thing, but I was very much like a, a young Jean Genet. And... Uh, <laughs> So, but, but those books, and I also used to steal money from my mum. This is a terrible thing. I used to steal 50 pence from her purse because it was enough to buy a Mayflower book of black magic. That is the, the only time that I have been truly scurrilous and criminal is in the desire for books, right? That is where the bibliomania really is. But, uh, but that bit, and I really wanted this little boy just to know, and I think it's a really important thing to go, this is not how life always has to be. But you might have, a, you know, that, that bit of when you're, when you're trapped in school or you're trapped in a world where there aren't, you know, again, when I mentioned before about kind of ideas of sexuality, ideas of, you know, when Josie rang, one of the things that Josie runs is this wonderful, or co-runs is this wonderful organisation called Arts Emergency. And Arts Emergency, one of the things they do is they basically go out to lots of people who might not believe that they're allowed to be poets or playwrights or whatever it might be. Because I'm in a lucky position, you know. I'm a middle-class white guy, and I was brought up in a house that was filled with books. And so even though, you know, I sometimes feel that I've battled to get where I am, my battle has been very minimal compared to many people who've battled because when they grew up, they were told they were not allowed to be poets. They were not allowed to be comedians. They were not allowed to be novelists or whatever. You know, when you see the work of people like Kit Duval and Lisa Blower, and all of the, like there was a wonderful thing. One of the books that I love is there's a book called "Do Miners Read Dickens?" and uh, it's it's about the miners' libraries, in particular the miners' libraries in South Wales. My friend Jeff uh, showed me the book first of all, and I bought it off him. And and that that was and I still think we're fighting this. I was chatting to my friend uh, Gavin, who's who is brilliant. He lives he lives he's, uh, uh, lives up in Newcastle, and he says you know when he reads the way that people talk about, you know, the way that conservatives talk about the working class vote and the way that they talk about what they... Th oh, well, of course, these people, they just they don't like gaudy things and, and they like boozing, they don't like reading. The attitude is still there, and he is someone who's brought up, you know, and, and, and is still a working class man who loves reading and loves ideas, and he's kind of sick to death of this constant idea that there is some shame in reading or that, that those great minds, you know, there was a point post-war where there was such richness in these voices coming forth you know one perhaps most famously people like Dennis Potter and now those battles are starting all over again you know that that desire and do miners read Dickens that was an MP who could not believe here was a miners library and there was Dickens and there was Darwin and there was not just one Huxley probably three Huxleys on the wall there 
I can't believe it. a minor reading Bleak House? I can't imagine it. And Jeff actually ended up taking over some of the miners' libraries when the pits were closed and looking after them. And he said, again, there was a wonderful richness in seeing the history of different books. Both Jeff and I love library books because I love, you know, they're, they're not meant to be worth very much money. Like if you're a book collector, you want a pristine book. I don't. I want a library book because a library book is filled with the footprints of other readers who've been there. And so like, I've got a first edition copy of Ursula K. Le Guin the Earthsea Trilogy, the first time the three were put together and it's from Shoreham Library and you look at the beginning of that book and it has been taken out every single week. It was never on the shelf. And I think of all of those people who might have been stuck on a train due to a points failure at Haverford West and some people are stuck there reading Nigel Dempster's diary and they're with the dragons of Ursula K. Le Guin. So that book is alive for me. I love the life in that book. And, and Jeff told me this wonderful story. He said, when he took over one of the miners' libraries, he said, the copy of the Communist Manifesto. Bang, 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 bang. The copy of the biography of the Duke of Marlborough by Winston Churchill, never taken out. Because the miners remembered that Winston Churchill brought the troops in during a strike. And I think, again, that what richness there is just in that book before you go any further with it. It's like when you see marginalia. Marginalia is something that I adore. I am someone who also writes in books. Right? I, like, I always have a pencil and I keep notes because I never want to sell the books on. I'm not trying to think of them as anything that, about money. I'm trying to think about the ideas. And then sometimes when you find one of my favourite ones, uh, the, uh, the, the wonderful Colin Blakemore. I don't know if you remember Colin Blakemore. Unfortunately, he died very, very recently. Uh, a neuroscientist who was one of the youngest people to give the wreath lectures and I bought a second-hand copy of his The Mechanics of the Mind which is the collection of those wreath lectures and uh, it's great because it's really spindly like very kind of I would say you know that 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 that, that writing that could be from the, the professor who's in uh, Whistle and I'll come to you. It's that kind of, of, of spindly writing in, in the margins. And this man who was reading this book is furious with Colin Blakemore. All the way through, it's a question mark or what on earth is he talking about here? And then there's one which says, this man doesn't even seem to understand buttered toast. And then at about page 63, there's just a little note that says, I'm going to stop reading now but when you turn to page 71 it turns out he didn't stop reading right anyway this is um this is uh when i was about six months there was one of my favorite books is a book called what do you care what other people think um so this was though thinking about the the what do you care what other people think is uh richard Feynman's various different essays and one of them is about his relationship with his first wife arlene who died very young and there's a beautiful piece in the book where he talks about sitting there while she was dying and being able to both think scientifically about what was going on, but also at the same time not being in any way emotionally detached. That He was both fully emotionally attached to her, but he was also thinking about that both those things could happen at once. And then he talks about the fact that when she died, he was left in the room on, on his own for a while, and he kissed her one last time, and then he says, I don't know why, but I, I just went to smell her hair. And I was surprised. I was surprised because it smelt exactly the same. And I thought, it's because something enormous has happened, and yet nothing has happened. And then he talks about going back to Los Alamos. 
and saying to all of the people, basically making it very clear he didn't want to talk about what happened. And he said, I was really trying to keep it just, you know, just suppressing it all the time. He said, but then I started to have dreams. And he said, I, I dreamt of Arlene. And I said to Arlene, you can't be in my dream. You're dead. You can't be in my dream. And then the next night I had another dream. And she was there again. And I said, you can't be in my dream. You're dead. She went, ah, I was bored of you. So I cooked up this ruse. But now I like you again. So I've come back. And then he says, but it didn't hit me until one day I was walking down the street and I walked past a shop window and I saw a dress and I thought Arlene would like that. And that's when it struck me. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, quite often when I'm in a bookshop, there will be various people who are no longer uh, here who I'll see a book and I'll go, oh, yeah, I'll get that for. And then I'll go, oh, I don't need to because they're not here. Um, and this was just, this is another thought, this was just about six months after my mum died, it was the first time uh, went on a little family seaside holiday. The fudge in the window was spur for a memory. Cup cubes behind glass, wasps dipping and licking. But no need to go in now. I can leave that shop be. The last time we bought some, they slumped in that paper bag to the left of your chair lumping back to a single candy mass in the sunlight. Never forgetful over sweet treats. You barely touch them now. Still there when you were gone. No purchase needed, but I'll browse a while anyway. Maybe a quarter of clotted cream. Shame to leave empty-handed. What window will remind anyone of me when I'm gone? So that was just a little bit about... I hope you're all right, actually, because I was—I've been really worried tonight because I just—I'm not sure if you were thinking it was going to be something else. But so I hope you've had a, 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 a kind of some, something nice going. But uh, but thank you very much for your time and thank you all for for turning up. So thank you. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to end this bibliomaniac event with a reading. Now, the bit of the book that I imagine very, very few people read is the acknowledgement section at the back. But there's lots of people that I do want to acknowledge. So, here are the acknowledgements, which also include both some book and record recommendations. Let me start the thank you page. I think it's meant to be called the acknowledgements page, but it's more than an acknowledgement, with a thank you to the family I married into, to my in-laws, Peter and Susan, who've always been so generous and have never publicly shown any horror that their daughter married an obsessional fool. Peter has always been ready to offer me lifts to and from some of the more obscurely positioned villages in England, and there's always been a glass of wine when we've returned, and frequently a conversation about Steptoe and Son, a favourite of both of us. Susan has not only made me amazing food, cut my hair and taken us all to the seaside, she also insists on buying everyone a copy of my book when they're published to try to get them on South Devon's bestseller chart. So thank you. And thank you to my dad for hothousing me to the point of book obsession. There are many other people to thank as always. Thank you to Natalie K. Thatcher for her magical work in creating illustrations that I love and I hope you do too. To all the booksellers who made me feel so welcome. And a special extra thank you to two booksellers I've known for quite a while and who are massive figures of inspiration as booksellers and book lovers. Jeff Towns and Vivian Archer. To all the people who turned up to the bookshops and the festivals that I visited. 
To all the people who encouraged me and gave me advice during the writing of this book, especially Lee Randall, Edward Dyson and Johnny Maines. To Kirsty Dool for her help organising the tour. To James Nightingale and Mike Jones for their editing notes. To Jamie Knight for helping me understand my own mind. To John Ottaway for giving me a face mask that helped me browse bookshops without steamed glasses. To Mick and Angela for being such a supportive part of any audience. And I should mention that since I wrote that, Mick has sadly died. And uh, so thank you very much, Mick. You you were just at so many gigs. And it was always quite amazing. So the number of times I argued with you and just said, just, I'll give you free tickets. You've come so often to so many gigs. And you go, oh, but every show's different. Um, and I'm glad that you came to the Albert Hall as well with Angela last year. To Julia Hamer for being another excellent member of the audience and for all the lifts to gigs and shops. To Elaine Downs for the whiskey and encouragement. To Trent Burton for being a truly dependable human. To Richard Osman, Ian Rankin and Natalie Haynes for taking the time to read this in proof, meaning the back cover wasn't blank. To Carl Cooper for his brilliance both as a purchaser of self-inflating lilos and as a radio producer. To the authors whose books I read but it was too late to put them in this book, including Sarah Polly, Jocelyn Nicole Johnson, Daryl W. Bullock, Laura Bates and Cookie Muller. To Penfriend aka Laura Kidd for being a great tour companion. You should check out her music by the way. To Nick Cave Warren Ellis, John Carpenter, Lanterns on the Lake Tindersticks, Michael Nyman, Cat Power and Haiku Salu for being the soundtrack as I wrote. And a special thank you to the person I've forgotten. Because I always forget someone. But I was thinking about you all along. In fact, I can't believe you slipped my mind. I was very tired. And when I wrote this, you know, well, well I, I just forgot. I forgot about this page altogether when the proof arrived. So it's all been a bit hurried. And the fact that it was you in particular that I forgot, I hope makes you feel rather special. And as always, thank you to Nikki and Archie for being there for love and adventures. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Go out and get Robin's book now. Cosmicshambles.com slash shop is where you can get it from us. Signed editions with exclusive art cards. Back next week with another new episode. Josie should be back next week. All things going to plan. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe at patreon.com slash bookshambles and you'll get the full extended hour and 20 minute video version of this event next week. Until then, take care. Stay safe. And bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.